The Water Values Podcast, Session 112. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utility, resource, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGibbs. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, I'm Dave McGimsey and thanks for joining me. We have a great show for you today. We have the return of the Bluefield on Tap segment. Uh, after Reese Tisdale and I, our schedules didn't match up very well uh, last time, and so we got him back. Uh, and he does a great job talking about uh, biosolids and resource recovery uh, after his travels at WEFTEC and asset management conferences. Uh, and we're going to um, uh, bring you a great interview with Stacy Isaac Barazer, who's with the uh, un- with the Environmental Finance Center at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She, they just released a report on uh, customer affordability plans and programs, and it is a uh, it's a great interview that she uh, shares a lot of knowledge about how these plans are, or these programs are set up around the country, what some of the stumbling blocks are, how to get them funded. So she just does a great job uh, walking us through all those building blocks. Before we get to uh, Bluefield on tap, though, uh, just a few housekeeping items as normal. Uh, I want to thank Barry Blunden for his great, uh, great comment on the website. He, he says, uh, thanks for the podcast. As a co-founder in the water space, your podcast, keep me on the tip of the spear by learning from talented and bright people in the industry. Bravo. Thanks so much for your comment, Barry. Really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for those of you who uh, rated and reviewed the podcast. We had a, a, a rating, but not a review this time. Uh, we had another five-star rating on iTunes. Thank you very much for uh, whoever uh, gave us that review, or excuse me, that rating. Uh, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving a rating and a review on iTunes. Really helps people uh, find the podcast uh, and gives them you know, some, some context about what the podcast is about and, and your views and your reviews really help uh, people uh, find that information out. Next, I just want to say uh, f- thank you for, for those folks who've made donations. Greatly appreciated. Uh, you, can, you can donate in any denomination you see fit by going to thewatervaluespodcast.com or thewatervalues.com and uh, scrolling down a little bit, you'll see a little uh, yellow PayPal button uh, that says donate. Uh, on the uh, lower right portion of the website. Uh, again, any any donation you give is greatly appreciated. It just helps defray the cost of the podcast. Uh, so thank you so much. Uh, as I indicated, we have Reese Tisdale back with Bluefield on tap. He's going to do a great job walking us through some biosolids issues. So let's get right to it. Here comes Bluefield on tap. Well, hey, Reese, welcome back to the Water Values Podcast and the uh, Bluefield on Tap segment. It's so great to have you back. I know you've been traveling a lot lately. Tell us where you've been. Hey, Dave. Uh, it's great to be back. Yeah, I was uh, actually in Chicago a couple weeks ago, WEFTEC, which for those not in the know, is the, I believe it's the largest uh, water conference trade show in the U.S. I think the numbers are about 22,000 people is what I heard, which is significantly larger than ACE. Yeah, that's a big conference. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of it is on, a big focus of it is wastewater, uh, municipal wastewater in particular. And there's, but there's other, other uh, discussions going on related to industrials. And then this past week, I was actually, uh, got to stay home, but go to a conference, which made everybody happy. I was at a water asset management conference. Uh, put on among some utilities and vendors 
in Boston uh, looking at strategies and case studies of what's been happening in that area as well. All right. So, so any themes from your travels that you kind of noticed uh, as you were, you were attending these conferences? Well, you know, it's interesting. I went into WebTech, you know, being the biggest conference of the lot. And going into it, you know, I think there's been, and I think I may have raised this about, you know, sort of has the bubble burst on infrastructure investment in the U.S. and were people going to be uh, uh, frustrated, for lack of a better way to put it. And, you know, I think generally it was upbeat. You know, the, the trade floor was really busy. Uh, the the vendors were really upbeat about what was happening as far as business opportunities. And, you know, a couple things that came out of it. One, I, I think it's just ongoing. Even on the wastewater side, there's this discussion about smart water, data and analytics, and how to better manage uh, company assets. But also for all these equipment vendors, incorporating these newer technologies into their uh, into their equipment. And I think another is, you know, I think as you and I talked previously about, are biosolids. It's something that has come up increasingly for utilities and how to better manage that. And I think part of it is it's it's really coming to the forefront because, one, someone's got to start paying for these rising bills. You know, rates can only increase so much. I think we've talked about water rates across the U.S. rising on average 5 to 7%, depending on how you look at it, um, based on Bluefield's research. So that's happening. So what is the source of the funding going to be for, you know, managing utility assets and sort of reeling in these costs? And so biosolids was an area where, they th where utilities and, quite honestly, engineering firms feel that there can uh, be some efficiency gains as far as costs go. Got it. So uh, in the biofield uh, uh, sector, you know, what, what are kind of the opportunities there that utilities are seeing and these engineers are seeing? Well, I think at the end of the day, they're having to dispose. They're having to pay to dispose of biosolids at the back end of the waste waste stream, and so they're seeing that as a cost. And then there are companies stepping into the into the sector that are saying, "Hey, we can take this and we can turn this into fertilizer. We can turn this into other things that uh, you know for energy usage and such that can be beneficial." I think what, one reason it's come up for us also is the role of D.C. water. And look, everybody knows they've done D.C. water out of Washington has done a really good job of marketing itself, being really proactive with its uh, blue drop consulting group, for lack of a better way to put it. But also they've also launched a uh, product called Bloom, which is basically they're creating fertilizer from their waste stream. And the idea is they're going to take those revenue gains through Bloom and pour it back into their coffers to offset or benefit their ratepayers. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, DC Water, you bring up, they, they've done a lot um, on, you know, the, the greater, you know, by kind of look at biosolids fitting into the greater resource recovery. So they're, 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 they have combined heat and power, right? And so they're, right. they're, yeah. they're taking uh, waste heat, you know, and they're, so they're taking their waste solids, um, and and figuring out something to do with it, so it's kind of like a one man's one man's trash is another man's treasure kind of kind of approach to it. Yeah, exactly. I think this is where utilities need to start looking more closely. At the end of the day, there are fifty thousand water systems in the U.S. Uh, community water systems. That is so. DC Water is at the leading edge. I think they've had a CEO 
that who actually is stepping down, I think, at the end of this year, but who's been really proactive in pushing alternative solutions and getting them out on that curve. Part of it driven by consent decrees, part of it just by internal ambition and motivation to create solutions for the utility, and also even through Blue Drop reaching out to smaller utilities. This is something that other other utilities, innovative utilities, need to start looking at more closely because it, I think there are expectations that, uh, I mean, quite honestly, as we all expect, we want lower cost water, wastewater services. And so if there are uh, opportunities, as you call them, treasures to be had, there's no reason that utilities shouldn't be taking advantage of this. The difficulty is it takes time and effort to step back and say and develop a strategy to say, hey, this is what we're going to do. But when it comes to biosolids, every wastewater utility is having to deal with them. Right, right. And I think it just takes um, – it's not just implementing – implementing the the biosolids recovery you got to go out and develop a market for it you know you can't because if you don't have the the market for the fertilizer you're, it's just going to sit there so you you really need to kind of take a i don't want to say soup to nuts but you get you got to take a, a more of a holistic view of how the utility is going to go out and and achieve these goals yeah and i think you know there are vendors stepping in i think the other thing to start thinking about is you know everybody keeps talking about p3s Maybe this is an opportunity for uh, financial players to step in and at least absorb some of those, some of the risk of doing so. Because what it does, is it keeps those P3 or those financial players at arm's length and outside of the utility assets itself, which everybody seems to be nervous about. So I, I, I think that there is also financial opportunity there as well. That uh, so that solves one of the problems potentially. But like I think you raise a good point. Uh, who can step in? Are there third-party firms that can step in and say, hey, we'll consolidate all this waste from these plants or all these different utilities and their plants, pull it all together and start making a market out of it? Awesome. Well, Reese, thank you very much. You've been uh, really informative, and I, I really like your insights on the, on the biosolids uh, uh, market and where it might be going. So I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for coming on, and we'll talk to you soon. Dave. Thanks again. We're excited about it. Talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks. Bye, Reese. Well, as always, Reese Tisdale does a fantastic job on the Bluefield on Tap segment. Uh, he just knows the industry so well, and he, he explains various points without being too technical. He, uh, he just has a, a, a good way of getting that information across. It's very understandable, and uh, I, I really appreciate him doing it, and I hope you do too. I, I know you guys uh, appreciate uh, what Reese brings to the brings to the podcast on the Bluefield on Tap segment. Well, we are now ready for the feature interview. Uh, the the interview with Stacy Isaac Barazer of the Environmental Finance Center at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Stacy does a great job uh, with a wide range of issues that affect customer assistance programs. So, uh, without further ado, let's get this thing rolling. Let's open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Stacy, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. Greatly appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much. Uh, to start off, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in water? Sure, Dave. This is a pleasure for me. Um, so in terms of my background, I am from the Caribbean, from a, a small country called Trinidad and Tobago. And so there is where I really got interested in the environment in general. Um, 
it's a very diverse ecosystem there. I grew up going on hikes with my family as a child, and especially the leatherback turtles in Trinidad really got me interested in environmental preservation, um, endangered species, and that kind of thing. Uh, in high school, I had a teacher, my geography teacher, Ms. Rudell, who really helped me to decide on a career in the environment. She was very passionate about environmental protection. And at that point in time, the local university in Trinidad only offered a degree in natural science. And so I really wanted to study environmental science. And so eventually I came to the U.S. on a scholarship to a small historically black college in Durham, North Carolina, uh, called North Carolina Central University. And there I was able to pursue a degree in environmental science. But after the first year or two, I started to kind of experience um, a progression, if you will. So I was studying science, but realizing that the science was there. In a lot of cases, we knew what chemicals were harmful to the environment and especially water. So I thought maybe really where I can make the most difference is in policy or law. So I thought of going to law school for a while, but eventually I realized too that the policies and laws get implemented pretty quickly if there's not a lot of money at stake. So if a big corporation stood to lose a lot of money by a new policy that would protect the environment, then maybe that policy was a little bit slower to get adopted and implemented. So I felt like finance or money was really where the most need was in the field. And so that's how I sort of got into environmental finance, if you will. Um, so that's kind of my progression and evolution as to where I wanted to end up in terms of making the most difference in the environment. Um, and I just kind of fell into water. I worked for a company in undergrad that focused on water quality and quantity issues. And even on a global scale, water is so critical to human life and the environment um, that it's interesting that it's fraught with so many issues and those issues need to be untangled. So that's where I want to put my time and energy. Oh, well, well, okay, Stacey. So uh, with, with that great background, what are you, what are you doing with it? What are you doing now? Okay, so I work at the Environmental Finance Center that's based at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, even though I work from a remote office in the Atlanta metro area. So environmental finance, it looks to answer the questions of who pays for an environmental project and with what money. The environmental project could range from, range from millions of dollars to bring safe and affordable water to, for example, the residents of Flint, Michigan, or it could be for a $3,000 project to weatherize a family's home in Sapelo Island off the coast of Georgia. It could even be how a tiny water system in Puerto Rico charges customers when some of his customers have more horses than their neighbors. So work with the utility there who said that they just charge a dollar more if a family has a horse. And it's a very small system, and that's environmental finance. So that is what, what I work on right now. Even though the Environmental Finance Center, or EFC at UNC, focuses on different media, I focus more on, on water, wastewater, and stormwater financing. So that's actually the bulk of what the, the Environmental Finance Center does at UNC. Um, and we, we try to answer the how you pay for a question. In, in other words, we say that one of our taglines is how you pay for a project matters. It has different implications for public policy, public education, et cetera. So that's where I am right now in my, my career. Got it. And, and, and I'm sure, I'm sure you know that Jeff Hughes, the, the, the director of the, the EFC has been on before. Uh, he did a great job talking about rate design and decoupling and things like that on the water, uh, the water side. So I, that was one of my, uh, most interesting uh, interviews, um, just because I, I, 
as a, as a utility guy, as a rate guy, uh, getting in and speaking with him on that was, was absolutely fascinating. And, uh, we're, we're here, we're going to talk about kind of affordability, uh, in water rates. And I'd like to, I'd like to, uh, talk about, you know, essentially, uh, the environmental finance center has put out this, uh, study recently called, uh, navigating legal pathways to rate funded customer assistance programs, a guide for water and wastewater utilities. And so you were the lead, the principal invest investigator on that. And I just, uh, would like to, to ask you, uh, initially, you know, why now, why did, why did you and the environmental finance center decide to undertake this affordability customer assistance, uh, project now? That's a great question. And really, I've been working on affordability since I was a student with the Environmental Finance Center as part of my master's paper, but it's really come to a head right now in terms of affordability as a major concern in the country when it comes to water pricing. Uh, Flint, Michigan had a little bit to do with that. Um, and then also we've seen that water prices, water and wastewater prices have been increasing over the last um, decade or so. And that's good. It's really needed. Those prices do need to go up. Um, water and wastewater have been historically underpriced in the U.S., meaning that the prices or the bills that customers have been paying for water and sewer really have not been covering the full cost or the true cost of providing that service. And the infrastructure has suffered. Um, it's easy for water infrastructure to suffer because it's buried, literally. It's not, you know, bright, shiny fire trucks. Um, driving around. So really, we only hear about these utilities a lot when something goes wrong. So they have been sort of forgotten and neglected for some time, generally speaking. So the rates have been going up, but that causes some concern for the poorest segments of utilities customers. So as these rates increase, and then there are also, you know, there are increasing regulations as well that what utilities have to address. And so they have they've had to raise their rates for those reasons as well. So we've seen the rates increasing faster than the rate of inflation, for instance, um, over the last several years. But in terms of this specific project, um, we weren't the only ones noticing this. So the project that you mentioned, the Pathways Project, I'll call it for short, was actually funded by seven different water and wastewater organizations. So they all came together, decided that we needed some research on this, um, and they put out an RFP. And so that's kind of how we got involved in this particular project. So it's this, this combination of water rates increasing, um, low-income folks having difficulty with that. And of course, water is not you know, something discretionary that you can choose to use or not. It's a, a, a need for life. So uh, these different water associations wanted to address the low-income affordability issues associated with water. Right, right. And so what, what's the result of the study, besides, you know, the result of all this work besides issuing the study? Can you tell us a little about, um, how, how about just the kind of the process and what, what the study tells you? Is it, you know, is it just a, a, a long paper or does it break, break down by state or how, how's, the, how's the study structured? Absolutely. So the process involved us coming up with 52 what we call summaries for each state as well as the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. So we came up with these two or three page summaries, if you, if you will, from each of these 52 entities. And it, it gives you a snapshot of 
let's say you are utility in one of those states and you want to design a customer assistance program. The, the main question, or if you would like the research question, since we are university, the research question was really centered around, can you use the rate revenues that your utility generates to fund some sort of customer assistance program, or CAP, as we've been calling it for short? Um, so that's really where we did our legal uh, analysis, et cetera. So we looked at you know, the, the usual legal research databases. We also looked at the state statutes, the Constitution sometimes addressed this. We looked for case law and we came up with a two to three page summary for each state um, as well as Puerto Rico and DC that sort of highlighted the main sources of let's say legislation and legal material that, that addressed this. Um, besides those 52 summaries, uh, we also have nine case studies of specific utilities around the country that we felt had something interesting to add to this conversation. And I should say too that we tried to really reach out to folks to review the um, the materials in the project. So with the 52 summaries, we reached out to the commission, for example, in each of those states, so that they could, you know, weigh in. Were we missing something? Um, was there a particular case that we didn't mention, for instance? So we did a lot of outreach there, and of course, those nine case studies of actual utilities—they were very involved, uh, wanting to make sure that we get. The descriptions of their specific programs correct. So that was the process and, and also, you know, the output. Um, online, we have an interactive map where you can go and select, you know, the individual state summary as opposed to reading, you know, the 170 pages uh, of the whole document. But what we found in terms of findings was, was that it is very difficult if you are uh, a small uh, system uh, for water or wastewater in a given state to figure out if it was okay to use your re revenue to fund an assistance program. It was it, the language, um, sometimes there was no language, so silence was an issue. Um, and then ambiguity was another major issue. An example there is that, is that we found words like just and reasonable. So the statutes <laughs> would usually say things like, you know, water and wastewater rates should be just and reasonable. And those are nice broad words, but the problem is that they are pretty subject to interpretation, right? Um, oh, yeah. So um, that, was, that was really one of the major messages that we got out of the, of the you know, state-by-state state study. Uh, it was amazing that there were very few states where it was clear, um, green light, you can use rates revenue, and there were very few states that have act had actually restricted it explicitly in their language. Most of the states fall into this... Um, you know, yellow or gray area. Uh, so we categorized all the states. We tried to, um, based on the level of authority, to use the rates revenue. So al along those lines, I mean, I understand why the why the legislature would say just and reasonable because then it would allow whoever has jurisdiction, whether it's the court for a non-regulated utility or the utility commission for a regulated utility, to to make the determination. It wouldn't be a legislative determination. Uh, they'd kind of let the you know, let let the the body that that has jurisdiction over those kind of figure it out. But th it sounds to me like that's the the theme, uh, or, or one of the themes that came out of this is kind of uh, it's a messy framework that you're you're dealing with. Are there any other themes that you know that that you noticed when you were doing the project? Yeah, one of the other reasons that it's um, sort of ambiguous is that we found very little case law that dealt with the specific issue of using rate revenue to fund an assistance program. 
So that adds to the murkiness of the whole situation, right? Um, the closest thing that we found was a case in Wisconsin, um, where it's, it's interesting because two major water issues of today kind of came together. Um, we are applying it to affordability in this case because it had to do with, with a request for rate increases, um, but it had to do with lead lines as well. So the, lead la the line that um, goes from the customer's meter, I guess, to the house is usually the personal responsibility of the, of the customer. But in this case, um, the city of Madison in Wisconsin wanted to raise the, increase the, the rates for all of their customers in order to replace these lead lines. Um, and they, you know, they made uh, a good case to the, to the commission, it would seem, but the Public Service Commission in Wisconsin denied the rate increase for the city of Madison to address these lead pipe laterals because it was for some customers. So only some customers would have their lines replaced. And so uh, the court weighed in, they reviewed the denial from the commission and they upheld it um, because they felt like it would be used to subsidize the cost of replacing uh, the remaining customer-owned lead laterals in the city and increasing the rates for all the customers to benefit that, that subset um, with what we kind of consider uh, a subsidy was, was, was frowned upon. Um, so that's the closest thing that we found. Uh, Wisconsin is different in a lot of ways um, in terms of how these service commissions or utility commissions across the, the country operate. That was also one of, the, one of the lessons that we learned. There are about, there are six commissions that do not regulate water at all, essentially. Um, and those were uh, Georgia, Michigan, North and South Dakota, Minnesota, and the District of Columbia. Um, so private water and wastewater companies are not regulated by the State Utility Commission in those states. Um, most other commissions really decide on which utilities, like you mentioned, David, they're going to regulate in terms of financial practices. So EPA is regulating all of these utilities because they are public providers of water, what we call public drinking water systems. Um, but in terms of the financial or economic regulation that's happening uh, by the commissions, you know, like I mentioned, six states did not uh, regulate the financial practices of the water and wastewater utilities at all, really. And Wisconsin was an exception as well, because while most of the commissions in different states distinguish between which utilities they'll regulate and which will not, um, based on the ownership of the utility. So is it privately investor-owned, or is it a public utility, meaning a city you know, municipal or county-owned utility. Well, in Wisconsin, it's different. They, um, they distinguish which utilities they're really going to regulate at the commission level based on whether it's, whether it's a water system or a wastewater system. So essentially, Wisconsin regulates all the water systems in that state, but not, not the, the wastewater ones. So it's, it's interesting. There are some rules out there, but there are certainly lots of exceptions um, to navigate. Well, that, yeah, that's real interesting, Stacey. Now, um, uh, in, in terms of how programs get developed, you know, there, at least from my perspective, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, kind of what's in the title of the Pathways study, which is the customer assistance program um, versus a, let's say, a, a general or a targeted lifeline rate. So 
and let me distinguish that initially. When I say customer assistance program, I've, I view that as kind of a standalone program that people apply to and get accepted into and, and get customer and get, you know, payments uh, to help subsidize their water bill versus a lifeline rate where everyone meeting the criteria automatically qualifies and gets the rate, whether they need it or not. Um, so did, did, did your study kind of, you know, delve into this issue at all, or did you, did you, did you experience that issue at all when, when performing the study? Sure. Yeah, we, we did, um, we did kind of address that a little bit. So, you know, we talked earlier in the program about why affordability programs, uh, and why now, and one of the things that I could have mentioned is that in general, utilities, like I mentioned before, do need to raise their, their rates. Rates have been historically underpriced. But sometimes there is one governing board member, one elected official or who, who has to approve this rate increase, and he or she will cite affordability as you know an altruistic sort of concern for the community. I don't think if we approve this rate increase, our community is going to be able to afford the new rates. And so we really encourage folks to, to first answer that question. I mean, do you need an affordability program? Do you need to be putting aside rate revenue for this? And there's a, a tool, um, an Excel tool that's pretty simple to use that uses census data uh, to answer that question. Will these new rates be unaffordable? And so that's a great place to start. But we have to answer that question at the utility level usually. Um, and one way to answer it is the lifeline rate that you described. Um, so utilities commonly cite that, and I can talk a little bit more about that in a second. But the other reason that affordability programs are becoming so co uh, common or popular right now is that it is a response to that decision maker who is saying, well, we can't raise the rates. We cannot approve this rate increase because then you know, we'll have an affordability problem. To be able to say, as utility staff, we understand that concern, it's a bona fide concern, and we have this customer assistance program that will help those customers. So that's another reason that we are seeing a lot of interest right now. Now, the lifeline rate that you mentioned, um, I think there are a couple tweaks on the, the definition on that, depending on who you ask. But, but David, essentially, um, groups like the American Water Works Association, for instance, have described this in what they call their M1 manual as sort of a reduced price for water for the first couple units. So an example, maybe the first 2,000 gallons of water will essentially be underpriced, where they charge less for that small volume of water than it's actually costing the utility to produce it and supply it to the customer. And that is one of the responses to, well, are the rates going to be affordable? Utilities cite that lifeline rate if they have it, um, and if they have what we call that consumption allowance, where a couple thousand gallons of water is included, they cite that as one of the ways that they are addressing affordability concerns in the community. So it's a, it has a lot of good um, merits, that practice. I guess one of the criticisms when it comes to affordability is that it is a discount or an assistance to everyone in your service population as a utility. It is not targeted only to the low-income customers. So how we see these customer assistance programs a little bit more broadly would go sort of beyond this lifeline rate concept where a certain level of income and folks below that level will qualify for some sort of discounted rate or special um, payment plans or even some utilities 
the assistance program involves going in and doing leak detection um, and, and fixing plumbing, et cetera, within the household. So that is what we're talking about when we talk about customer assistance programs, going a little bit beyond the lifeline rate. And in terms of addressing and targeting these, these customer assistance programs to low-income customers, there's, um, I should mention, the city of Philadelphia right now, which, is, which has this summer um, in, in July sort of launched the country's first example of an income-based rate. So it's, it's truly income-based. If the low-income customer applies for the program, they will actually receive a bill every month that's the same amount, so it's capped, and it has to do um, with a percentage of that household's income. And so that is the the most um, that's the the most interesting example we've seen lately. And it's it's uh, it seems to be I don't know of any other examples of that sort of very specific income based sort of rate structure for for water services anywhere in the country. So a lot of folks are paying attention to Philadelphia to see. How, how that works out um, and how it addresses affordability concerns uh, in, in that city. Yeah, I've, I've got Philadelphia on my list of, uh, of you know, utilities to uh, discuss how their, how their rate structure has worked out, you know, obviously give it a little time to, um, to, to get some results. But uh, I, I mean, one of the things you said I, I'm glad you highlighted was that these customer assistance programs don't have to be, you know, purely financial, you know, in terms of, of going in and helping with leak detection. Um, I've heard of customer assistance programs where they'll actually go in and, re, you know, replace fixtures uh, with, with water-efficient fixtures for uh, low-income individuals and families. Um, so I, I think that's a really important uh, component that you brought up is that it's not purely – um, just kind of a subsidy on the bill. It's it's also helping helping these folks, uh, you know, conserve water in 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 many instances. Have, in terms of the customer assistance programs, uh, have you you know have you seen uh, like impacts on uh, the utilities' financials in terms of bad debt or um, you know in, insufficient funds charges, things like that? Sure. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons to, to go into developing some sort of customer assistance programs is altruistic reasons, right? We talked about, of course, water is a basic need of life, and you want to make sure the folks in your community, um, your neighbors, essentially, have access to this basic need. And so some utilities go into this assistance program arena simply for those altruistic reasons. But if you're looking more at dollar values on the bottom line, um, when a system has a high level of non-payment, there, there are certain costs associated with that. So, you know, you have increased arrearages, you have late payments, um, you have disconnection notices that the utility needs to send out. They have to go out and send someone to terminate the service. And so there are actual costs involved to the utility in having a high level of non-payment. Uh, bond buyers as well uh, of utility bonds, they also get nervous when they see a high level of non-payment. So those are some of the financial or fiscal reasons that utilities go into this. From the utility perspective, right, then you also have the customer perspective. So assuming that someone is not paying their bill because they have financial hardship and they are indeed low income, when there is a late payment assessed um, and then there is a fee to reconnect, 
that puts those low-income customers even further back. And we talked about bounce checks um, at some utilities as well. It, it does not help the individual customer when you have these additional costs when they're already financially um, strapped. So it seems like there, there are financial reasons to, to invest in developing some sort of customer assistance program, both from the utility perspective as well as the customer perspective. Right. And, and so it sounds uh, like you've just made a very compelling argument that when you're looking at that statutory language, you mentioned just and reasonable. I've seen non-discriminatory in there uh, as well. And I, I think that's why a lot of uh, traditional utility regulation, the non-discriminatory was taken very, very literally. And so any deviation um, was, was determined to be non was determined to be discriminatory. And if, if you can put on a case that says, look, the utility is going to save a lot of money on administrative costs right. by implementing this customer assistance program. The beneficiaries of that ought to, ought to uh, you know, you can use that money to um, uh, kind of give a break or, or, you know, to the low-income folks without being discriminatory in nature because they're the ones who, who would be causing the costs. And then, then by um, implementing the CAP, those costs would be removed and, and – those costs ought to go to benefit the uh, the lower income folks that were causing them. Um, so, so, Stacy, where do you see customer assistance programs going now that this pathway study has been issued? Have you, you know, has the reception been good for the study? Uh, you know, what can you talk a little about about how it's being been received and and where you see things going? Okay, sure. Um, so, we see customer assistance programs or affordability programs as becoming more relevant going forward because we talked about, you know, the increases in regulation. Utilities have to add new services to, to meet those regulations um, or new processes, I should say. And we talked about um, that the, the bills are just rising. One of the reasons, too, one of the financial challenges for water and wastewater systems is that per capita, the amount of water used is going down. So we see that trend going forward as well. So all of those things are going to really exacerbate um, the affordability problem. So when a utility had revenue projections where they were expecting to sell X amount of water, you know, in the future, but they're selling X minus Y, then they have to make up. And so they probably have to raise rates. So we see the problem as unfortunately only getting worse in terms of affordability. So we see more assistance programs being developed. And so that's, that's, that represents a lot of the folks who have been accessing the report and looking at different ways um, that they can fund these customer assistance programs. Yeah. Um, we, also, we also think it's really important that the, you know, you can fund, and I should, I should take a step back to Dave and say that you can fund a customer assistance programs in, in, in different ways than using your rate revenue only, but we feel like it's not a reliable, robust funding source if you don't use your rate revenue. So, you know, if an affordability program is, let's just call it a grown up, you know, bona fide program of a water system or water utility, then it should be funded as such. So some of the other ways we've seen affordability programs funded in different parts of the country, especially, of course, in the states where it's more restrictive um, and it says that you can't use rates revenue, we've seen, you know, roundup programs, for instance. So instead of writing your you know, Dave, you may say, well, okay, I have a, a $53.23 uh, 
water bill, you write it for $54 or even $60. And that extra money is used uh, to fund, you know, to assist low-income customers. We've seen that another nice part of money that we've seen recently is um, service line protection programs where, like, for example, the laterals that we talked about for the Wisconsin case that had lead, you can pay sort of an, a, a third-party insurance company, and, and if you have any problems with your your personal lateral, it can get replaced. So um, utilities get a royalty off of that, and we've seen them use that for their assistance programs. We've seen more recently uh, cell towers or cell companies, sorry, want to rent space or, or lease space from water utilities with, with water towers. That's a nice discrete part of funds as well. But all of those, um, and we definitely, you know, if you are in a state where it says very clearly that you cannot use rate revenue for an assistance program, then you definitely have to look at those kinds of sources. But I guess we would argue that those are not very reliable or robust funding sources. Um, and so uh, it needs to be clarified uh, whether a utility in a given state can use their rate revenue to fund this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I've seen uh, utility commissions reject customer assistance programs that were funded with uh, excuse me, below the line revenues, like in in the case I'm thinking about specifically, uh, you know, sell lease revenues, uh, which, you know, would be below the line for rate making purposes, uh, but would still help defray the overall revenue requirement. Um, um, those, you know, the, the utility requested to, you know, fund a, use a small portion of those fees to put into a customer assistance fund and uh, the commission rejected it by saying that, uh, you know, even though it's below the line, so to speak, it would still help defray the overall rate increase. And therefore, it would be discriminatory because the people, you know, the, the people who can afford to pay would be discriminated against because they wouldn't receive the benefit of those cell tower releases that the utility uh, was getting the money for. So uh, That's just, a good point. Yeah. You've, seen, you've heard that argument um, in, for example, the state of North Carolina, where you know, there are some conservative lawyers who, who we work with in North Carolina who will say that you cannot use, you know, that example that you gave is, is perfectly um, the response that we heard from them. Uh, and then there are other groups that are trying to push the envelope a little bit, if you will. Um, again, since the report shows that only a couple states really say, you know, this cannot be used, um, we, have, we find some, some utilities trying to kind of push the envelope and and encourage the discussion, at least in in their own state, as to what is legal. But we certainly have um, that's a, that's a great example. We've heard conservative lawyers uh, say that you shouldn't use, you know, lease lease revenue from from your water towers, for instance. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I'm I'm happy that in in at least where I am in Indiana, we have a new statute that just passed earlier this year that allows uh, for. Uh, customer assistance programs because Indiana is one of the states where that that took the stricter view on on uh, from at least from a regulated utility standpoint as to what uh, you know what was legal and what wasn't and so this new statute um, is a step in the right direction I think in terms of getting uh, customer assistance programs set up here uh, for those utilities that elect to to go down that path you know one of the reasons I think that this is a big issue in water is is that there's no kind of parallel thing that the energy sector has or the heating sector has. Like, in you know, there's LIHEAP for gas customers, right, so that, that low-income gas customers can can get um, uh, assistance. But there's nothing parallel in on the water side. 
Uh, and so, I mean, have, did, did that come up in your review at all? It did. Um, so to be honest, I think it, it was one of the things that instigated all these seven different associations for water and wastewater to, to pilot a study like this. Um, and I know there has been stuff at the federal level where, you know, legislation has been introduced to, to create something like a water version of LIHEAP that you mentioned. So um, that kind of sort of germinated the, the idea for the project, I think, in, in the funders' minds in some ways. Um, so, so we will see. There, in, in the project as well, in the, in the report, we do have a section that's only a few pages long that talks about two other utility sectors and how they have approached the idea of low-income affordability issues. And so one of them is the energy sector. And so we talked about LIHEAP a little bit in that, in that part of the report. And then we also looked at the telecommunication sector, um, partly because there are things changing in the water industry. I mentioned, for example, how per capita water use is going down through no fault of the utility. I mean, you know, plumbing codes are changing, water fixtures are becoming more efficient. And so there are, there are changes in the industry and I don't think any other industry has had more changes in terms of utilities um, than telecommunications. So the program to give assistance for telecommunications federally used to have to do with landlines, right? Right. But now it's looking at number of cell phone minutes per month and, and, it's, and, and data as well, you know, internet pro provision for low-income folks. So we thought that was a good um, industry to probably learn some lessons from. But yeah, there is this, this discussion that there is no LAHIP version for, for water, and water is also a very, obviously, a, a necessity for, for life. So that discussion is going on. Um, but we, we only really focused, it, focused on it in the report in that um, one of those later sections on comparisons or lessons learned from other utility sectors. Sure, and sure, and you may have already gone through this, but could you could you just uh, identify one of the case studies that you included in the pathways study, and uh, and and just tell us a little bit about it? And if you've already done it, that's that's fine. Um, you can just you know do it however you however you want to answer the question. That's great with me. Okay, sure. Um, so I would mention the city of Atlanta, um, and we have, like I said, eight other case studies, but. Atlanta is a, is a little bit in a, a unique situation, I think, because in Georgia, the gratuities clause has been a real hurdle, or at least a perceived hurdle, for assistance programs in the state. So, and I'm also a little bit biased. I have to pick, you know, one, and that's, that's, that's a little bit difficult. So I'll pick the one that I'm closest to, as <laughs> I mentioned. I'm in a satellite office in the Atlanta metro area. But the city of Atlanta has had an, a, an assistance program for many years. Um, but this gratuities clause is basically a gift clause that, from my understanding, um, is each state has a, a gift clause. Well, in Georgia, the gratuities clause is in the state constitution, and it has been tested, and it has held up um, in other sectors that this is, this is a real concern. Um, it looks like a bribe. Um, it looks like a gift that's, you know. So the, the water utilities, from my understanding, and of course I'm not a lawyer, but have have had a bona fide concern about having custom assistance programs because of that gift clause. But the city of Atlanta has been funding their program from different funding sources. They also use service line uh, protection from like those third party insurance companies. 
Um, but in 2016, they actually, you know, one million dollars was from rate revenue was put aside for their care and conserve program. And they are one of the utilities that has a very broad customer assistance program. They don't only help with bills, but they go into homes indirectly um, and actually help with uh, plumbing leaks and that kind of thing. So that is one of the case studies that we that we highlight. Um, and it shows the progression from using smaller pots of money and trying to be creative, then all the way the evolution towards 2016, we're gonna use rate revenue. And they have changed Georgia is a very strong home rule state, and home rule played a big part in in this research as well. But home rule is a home rule. Sorry, is a little bit of a term of art. It's not doesn't have a very specific legal definition when you try to look at how it's defined in in you know all 50 states. Um, but Georgia is, for what it's worth, a, a strong home rule state, and they were able to make changes to their um, city code to address some of the concerns from this gratuity clause. So. And that's just one of the examples. And each of the case studies tries to, you know, give some lessons and some, if you will, workarounds in terms of um, funding uh, a robust assistance program. Great. Well, Stacy, you've been a wonderful guest. I really appreciate you taking time uh, out of your data to speak with me on this. And I really think your work is 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 so important right now because we are experiencing that uh, that the need to raise rates. Um, more than we ever have before. And it's, you know, these customer assistance programs, I think are going to be key to, to getting uh, our utility leaders and elected officials beyond just kind of a, a, a resistance to raise rates because it's going to disproportionately hurt some, some portion of the community if, with a traditional rate scheme. So I really think your work is, is timely and uh, very important. So I want to thank you so much for coming on. Um, you know, in closing, uh, could you just, you know, tell folks who want to find out more about the study or more about you, where they can go to find that information? Sure. Well, our website is a great place. Um, we have some conferences that we'll be presenting at coming up. And I, I will say in terms of the the reception for the project, um, we've had the project webpage hit like over 1,200 times and reports been downloaded over 400 times. So folks are accessing it, but for your listeners, we will be talking um, at the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissions um, next year, although um, not everybody, not all your listeners are commissioners. So just going to our regular website is probably the, the best way. And um, the website, the URL is EFC as an Environmental Finance Center dot SOG as in School of Government, because that's where we're located, dot UNC as in University of North Carolina. So our URL is like a, a microcosm of our structure, right? EFC.SOG.UNC.EDU. Um, and what I would recommend is just typing into our search box, you know, keywords like pathways um, or affordability to find the report. If you get to our homepage right now, it's on the homepage until, you know, it's usurped by another big research project. But that <laughs> probably won't happen for a while. This is a big part of the work that we do. But efc.sog.unc.edu should get you there. Terrific. And, and for for those folks who didn't are uh, driving or something like that and weren't able to write that down, I'll have it linked on the show notes, uh, which you can you can find at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod, P-O-D, pod, one, one, two. Um, so Stacy, again, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, great work. Really, really think you're onto something here. So thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity, David. Okay. Bye. Thanks. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Stacy Isaac Barazer. She did a great job. I really appreciated her taking some time out of her day. 
And I, I hope after listening, you, you get a sense of how important I think these customer assistance programs are in the financial um, stability of our utilities because utilities need to raise rates. And if they continue to raise rates to the levels they need to be, low-income populations are going to be hurt uh, disproportionately. And so I think these customer assistance programs are absolutely key and critical in getting utilities over the hump and getting them to raise rates so that they can invest in our utility infrastructure. Uh, so it's, it's that simple. I think these, these customer assistance plans are incredibly important. And if I didn't make that clear uh, during the interview, <laughs> I hope you know now. Well, as I've indicated a couple times, you can check the show notes out for this episode at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 112. Please let me know what you thought of it. Please let me know your, your position on customer assistance programs by leaving a comment on those show notes. Uh, or you can email me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can tweet at me at the hash at the, my handle, which is at DTM1993. You can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. And then please do me a favor. If you visit the website, sign up for the newsletter. Uh, it only gets released uh, when we have a podcast, so that's twice a month. Uh, so you're not going to get spammed or anything. So uh, sign up for the podcast or sign up for the newsletter. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, and spread the word. You know, tell your colleagues about it. Uh, let's let's grow this uh, this listener base even more. I've been in, incredibly impressed how fast it's grown. Uh, but I always want to reach more folks and help more folks learn about water. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. Listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.